stand with me, if you will, and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is eternal. Your word would outlast the, the heavens and the earth. And it's your word that we need, Lord. We need your truth in us. We need the liberty that comes from your truth. We need to be free to live out our purpose and our destinies. And Lord, we, we hit some roadblocks along the way. And maybe some here are at that place. They just hit a place in their life where they're trying to figure out what to do next. Lord, may you speak to them out of the pages of this book. You need to speak to us, and we need to hear what you're going to say. So help us to block out every distraction and say, God, speak to me today. Speak to me and change my life today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we uh, talked about the heart of God, and it's more defined as the heart of our Heavenly Father. Um, Paul Burdine, who's going to be preaching Wednesday night, came up to me after the service and says, uh, you took my video. And I said, the video that we showed earlier in, in the service? He said, yes, I was, I was going to show that Wednesday night. I said, you are kidding me. He says, no, you took my video. <laughs> so maybe he'll replay it. Uh, what a powerful message, though, in that video. God is our Heavenly Father, and as good as parents as we could ever come, we wouldn't even come close to how He is, right? And I want to take you to a passage I refer to in Acts 13, verse 22. We'll start from there. Acts 13, verse 22. This is the first missionary journey, and Paul and uh, Barnabas and his team uh, are attending a, a synagogue service on a Saturday, and... Um, you know, people are aware that these, uh, and Paul might have had a reputation. Uh, this is a guy that's learned under the greatest theologians. And, and so the, the leaders of the synagogue asked them, if you could bring a word of exhortation to everyone, we would appreciate it. Well, you should have never gave the, the floor to Paul. And what he does, he starts in this redemptive history of Israel. He goes all the way back about God providing protection for the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, getting them into Egypt when they were about to starve to death. And for 400 years they stayed there, and then God brought them out. And, he, and he's chronicling this redemptive history of Israel. And as he gets further in, he said, God raises up judges, and he's raised up prophets, and, and uh, he anointed uh, Saul to be the first king of Israel. And then he makes a statement about David I referred to last week. But intentionally, I did not read the last sentence or the last phrase of that verse. It does say that God witnessed himself that he had chosen David, a man after his own heart. But it doesn't stop there, does it? And that's where I stopped because I wanted to pick this theme up today. This is what qualifies David a little bit as to how did he become a man after God's heart. I'll read it specifically. After removing Saul, the Lord made David their king, and God testified of him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And here's the qualifier. He will do everything I want him to do. Do you realize how many employers would like to employ somebody like that? That whatever you tell them to do, they're not going to ask, 
why or give you a suggestion as to how to do it better. You might have been around people like that. Just do what you're told to do. And God's estimation of David was, if I tell him something to do, he will follow through with it. Now, is there a better compliment that God could give to someone than that? He will do everything I want him to do. That's what made David a man after God's heart. Now, we're going to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and if you'll turn there, and we're going to camp there just a little bit, so stay right there. If you have your Bibles, if you want to pull it up on your phone. This may seem odd to you, but I believe one of the things that lets us know why David was a man after God's own heart was the things surrounding the scandal that he had with Bathsheba. And you think, well, that's an odd thing to go to, his failure. But I think in his failure and the things surrounding that failure, we can kind of get an idea of what constituted David. I'm not going to go through chapter 11 um, about this horrific thing that David did. I'll just summarize it. You can read through. We're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 11 as we, we get further into this. But David had slipped into a place of idleness. People have examined this. David, David was in his 40s, as some have calculated, which some said he might have went through a midlife crisis. Uh, but one thing is for certain, we do know that David had slipped into a state of, of, of a lack of focus, of idleness, because usually he was with his army out in the, in the field, leading them in battle, but he's not with the army. He's home and... He probably has too much time on his hand, what, whatever's going on. And he gets a glimpse of Bathsheba, and he, something stirs up in him that he wants to have, he wants to meet her, so he sends for her. She's a married woman. He sends for her. She comes to the palace, to, to the king's residence, and a night of intimacy follows that, and an unwanted pregnancy comes out of that. So in David's mind, he's done something that he wanted to do, but it's covert. Nobody knows. Maybe just his attendants. They know. I mean, the people he sent to get her, they know. They're kind of like the Secret Service agents. They're uh, pledged to confidentiality, but they know probably more about what happens on the privacy of presidents and leaders. But David, David thought he had done this. This is what he wanted to do, and it was over with. And then she sends word to him that she's pregnant. And her husband is not only one of the mighty men in Israel's army, he's a friend of David. He's one of David's closest friends. So David goes into like a a Richard Nixon syndrome. Cover it up. And for what Whatever is going on in his head, it's hard to imagine him coming up with this. This is so unlike him. He thinks, well, we'll just send a, a relief to Uriah and tell him he, he gets a, a pass, an R&R pass to come home and rest. And, and he comes home and he's hoping that he will have a relationship with his wife and that the pregnancy can be Uriah's. But Uriah, this is how godly Uriah is. 
He says, well, why should I enjoy my wife when my friends are out there battling an enemy and putting their lives on line? So he refuses to have a relationship with his wife. Doesn't even go into the house. Sleeps outside the house. And David brings him. That didn't work, so David brings him. Kind of gets him inebriated. It is hard to track this as to what's going on here. But he is obsessed with covering up what he doesn't want anybody to find out. Ends up that he arranges Uriah to be put in a vulnerable situation in which the opposing archers hit him with arrows and kills him. And they go through this morning time, and this is what you read at the end of chapter 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Which gives us the idea that Bathsheba was really in a place where she couldn't really tell the king what, what's what. He was absolute authority. He said she could have resisted, but that this, is the, this is a monarch. But she mourned for her husband. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore his son. And this is a statement I want you to underline. But the thing... David had done, displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I don't think we understand the gravity of that. God chose David as a teenage shepherd boy because he was a young boy after his heart. And knowing that David and watching that David do what he had just done it's kind of lost in that the thing that he had done had displeased the Lord. So what, is, what does God do? What does God do with a man who's a man after his heart who comes to this kind of catastrophic place? He sends a prophet to him. And this is where chapter 12 starts picking up from this last statement. And God tells Nathan, and you can follow along with me. I'm, I'm not going to read a lot of it word for word, but the Lord spoke to, to Nathan and he sent Nathan to David, and he said, when he came to David, he had, given, he had given Nathan a story, a word picture. And you think about it, how many parables did Jesus give with word pictures? So Nathan tells David, the king, and they're friends. You know, we'll go to another place where earlier, years earlier, they had a more pleasant conversation. But Nathan comes and says, let me tell you this story. Two, there's two men one was very wealthy, had lots of sheep and cattle, and, and there was this poor man who scraped enough money together to buy this one young ewe lamb. Just a small, not far from being born lamb. And said this rich man had a traveler come in to town to visit him, and instead of taking one of his sheep or one of his cattle... He went over and by force took this man's lamb. Now, to intensify this, and Nathan is telling David a story and it's provoking emotions. Every, every sentence, you could probably see David's face turning red as he's listening to the story. And he said, this wasn't their only lamb. This was one that they actually had inside their house a lot that ate right from their table. Now, I know people who feed their dogs from their table. Lord help them. 
Because I visited people like, no, I'm not going to say. In Colorado, we got a real introduction to a big old dog that almost would eat off your plate if you wasn't watching him. No, get away. But this little lamb, they fed this little lamb. They loved it. They held it. It went to sleep in their arms. He tells this elaborate story about, and they violently take this lamb away from the man, and he kills the lamb and prepares it for dinner for his friend. And when he gets to that part of the story, David explodes. And he says, that man is worthy of death. He should at least return four times the worth of that lamb to that family. And you're following the story. He looks at David and he said, David, this is verse 7, you are that rich man. And see, in David's mind, he's not the rich man, he's the poor man. He's been on that side, but he doesn't see himself as being a wealthy man that takes advantage of other people. He's identifying with this this poor man who he's been there, and he knows what it is to have scarcity, and, and he erupts out of that remembrance of what kind of life he grew up in. He doesn't see himself as the wealthy man that had, could have anything he wanted, but he took the only thing that Uriah had. Now, there's some things here when God begins to speak, and I, w- I want to take you through what Nathan has to say. He says, the Lord, this is verse 7, the Lord, the God of Israel, says to you, David, And follow this, because there's some points here. There's five points I'm going to give you right here. Some of you that like to write these things down in numbers, here it goes. I have anointed you king over Israel. And it's not just a title. God is telling David, I put you where you're at. I anointed you to this place of authority that you've abused. I put you in this place. I anointed you. The second thing is, is I delivered you from the hand of Saul. You know, if anybody could understand being a fugitive, it's David. Hiding in caves, going to, going to one place, a place of enemy, and acting like he was insane and psychotic, and, and they're like, he's raging mad, and David's got this theatrical thing going on. He's just trying to survive. He's running for his life. He knows what it is to be oppressed. He knows what it is to be this close to dying. And God is telling you, it was was my protection over you that kept you and that delivered you from King Saul. I was the one that delivered you from King Saul. And then he says, I gave your master's house to you. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah which is kind of an interesting thing because David, the first seven years that David was king, he wasn't king over the whole nation. He was just king over Judah and over Benjamin. You know, the the rest of the nation wasn't ready to embrace him as the king. For seven years, he was a king just in a minor way. But the last 33 years, the whole nation rallied around him. And God said, I'm the one that gave you the entire nation behind you. And if it had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord? By doing what is evil in his sight. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife 
to be your own. He says, you killed an innocent man and you used your enemy's swords. This is what the next... You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You used the Ammonites. Those people that are not like us, you acted like them. You stepped into somebody that I don't recognize. This is God talking to him. Now, therefore, the sword will not depart. Up earlier, he says, I've given you wives. I gave you the wives that you had. You had wives. You didn't need another one. And if you needed more, I would have given you more. Now, it's kinda, it kind of bothers me when people go back to David and Goliath and 1 Samuel and, and that David arrives and there's this deal going on and his older brother's in the army and, and Goliath's coming out there and he's just ridiculing the armies of Israel and, and David gets there to check on his brothers. His, his dad, go check on your brothers, take some food to them. They're in the battle. When David gets there, he sees this thing unfolding, this giant of a man coming out and defying the God of Israel and defying the armies of Israel. And you know the story about David and Goliath. And David asks, what's going on here? And his brothers, his brother's like, why don't you go back to those few little sheep you, you tend to? Now, if you don't think what David was doing was looked down upon, listen to that statement. We're out here doing important work. Why don't you go back? And just sit out there and watch them eat and make sure they have water to drink. That's all you have to do. And he inquired more. And then someone says, well, the king is so desperate, Saul is so desperate for someone to go out there and challenge him. That if somebody does and they win, they're going to get, he's going to give them instant wealth. He's going to give them his daughter. And his father's house will be tax-free from now on. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Unless you may have seen the king's daughter. Or you knew a little bit about her because when David did, David did get that daughter, but she was a pain in his flesh. Her attitude was, was satirical. She, she was a hostile person to the things of God. So, uh, you know, I think these guys, if they, looked, if they really looked at that wealth and that, that promised bride in a tax-free environment, if they really looked at that and thought that all of that was worth it, they would have been out there trying him, wouldn't they? But no one would try, and it's not... And I've heard people say, well, the reason David went out there is that he wanted wealth and he wanted that woman and he wanted a tax-free environment for his dad. And they try to make David as though he's a, a gold digger. He's trying to do this to become a wealthy person. He was embarrassed that the God of Israel was being challenged by someone and no one would stand up to him. That's what drove him. And when he went out to meet him, you know, he was, he was bringing curses down on this little runt of a guy. And he was telling him what he's going to do to him, trash-talking him. I'm going to cut you up into pieces. And, and David's got that, that piece of leather going with a rock in it. And when he lets it go, he had just said, I don't come to you that way. I come to you in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Now, he didn't get wealth. He didn't get the wife. And I doubt if they got tax-free anyway. So that's like the government promise and stuff, isn't it? He probably didn't get any of that. 
And what he got was a jealous king after that point that tracked him down trying to kill him. And that was the man, when you look at it, that Nathan is talking to. No, he's about probably 25 years older, and he's got children, and he's got wives, and Nathan is telling him, David, you had everything. You had everything. Why did you do that? Now, here's, here's where I believe this gives us an insight into David being a man after God's own heart. When Nathan looked at him and says, you are that rich man. And he gives him a rebuke. He gives the king a rebuke. He rebukes him. He just read most of the rebuke. And David said in verse 13, he even said, he said, David, you're going to have trouble in your family. The chaos is going to be in your home. You're, some of your wives are going to be unfaithful to you. You've sown seeds that this is going to come back on you. The sword is not going to ever depart from your family, and it did not. He had tragedy in his life. He had rape in his family after that. There was, there was all kind of cat, catastrophic things that happened to David. But this is what David said. He said in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I'm going I'm to end here just with that note here in just a moment. But Nathan goes on to tell him, I love what uh, Chuck Swindoll said one time about this. He was reading about this. And as soon as uh, he was preaching on the radio, he said, Nathan, uh, David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven you. The Lord has forgiven you. I mean, like, Blanket statement. All he said was, I have sinned. And Nathan's next words is, the Lord has forgiven you. But, and he gives the choices that God has given him as a consequence. He said, first of all, the son that she's carrying is going to die. And then you've got these options. And all of them are, are catastrophic. And this is what Chuck Swindoll says. Here's what grace is. Grace means that God won't kill you. You know, David, I got good news for you. You're forgiven. God's not going to kill you. Because think about it. Two things he did in this story was death capital in his culture. What he did with Bathsheba, a common person would have been stoned to death. And then he was the principal agent of murder, which is also a capital offense in Moses' law. And so what grace means is that God's going to give you what you don't deserve, but mercy means God is not going to give you what you deserve. God is going to have, God has mercy on David right here. Why does God have mercy on David? Well, he says he's a king and, and you just can't execute the king. I believe it's those words that David said, I have sinned. The, the eruption of his remorse and his guilt came out at that moment. He could, have said, he could have said this to Nathan. Who do you think you are coming into my palace and lecturing me on morality? I'm the king here. That's the way Saul would have responded. 
That's why Gene Edwards' book, The Tale of Three Kings, is a great read. David could have went with the spirit of Saul, or he could have had a spirit of Absalom. But David was a man after God's own heart. He says, well, how did he do that? Because he's mortal. And no mortal man is perfect. And even when he did this kind of grave things in the sight of God, God didn't wash him away and wipe him out. He says, I can still use you because in your heart you are a man after my heart. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, years before Nathan and David have this wonderful conversation, David is living in this palace that he's built. Beautiful palace. Right in the heart of Jerusalem. And he looks over there and he sees the tabernacle of the Lord, which is still a portable tent. And he starts thinking, why do I live in something so beautiful? And the ark of the Lord is staying inside of a tent. And so he converses with Nathan on this, and you can read it, it's it's, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7. And he converses with Nathan, and, and Nathan thinks about it, And then he kind of confirms to David that it's okay you do this. It's okay that you plan to build this, but you're not going to be the one to build it because you you got so much war on your hands. Your son's going to build it. And so here was David and Nathan having this different conversation, and this is what shows you why why was David a man after God's heart in light of... Why was David a man... Because David had a heart to please the Lord. And maybe that word that we read that God communicated to David, David, you really displeased me. You displeased me. I'm disappointed in you. You knew better. And so David responds the way God knew he would. He humbled himself. He accepted responsibilities and the consequences. He didn't blame it on Bathsheba. He didn't blame it on, well, I'm in a bad place in my life and, you know, my, my relationship with my other wives are not really good. He, di- he didn't try to go into and explain anything. He took responsibility. And this is what, this is the one thing, and, and if, we, if we can have the praise team come back up. And this is what I'm going to, and I want us to sing uh, I Surrender. We're going to do a little worship for our altar time. How's that? Do you want to be a a man or a woman after God's heart? How do you do that? How do you get there? How do you stay there? David is a good example that you can veer off course no matter who you are. You lose your focus and you get into a place of idleness and you're not actively pursuing the things of God. You can end up in the ditch. You can crash and burn. Doesn't mean God is going to be through with you, but it means there's going to be some scars left, right? God forgave David, but there were some scars left. Here, I think, is the prevailing principle, and this is what I want to present to you this morning. Would you stand with me? I don't even know if this is a word, and if it's not, Charles Lynn is about to add to Webster's list. Part of having a heart after God is being willing 
for the Lord to rebuke you. And this is the word. Are you rebukable? And I'm sure that is not in Webster. But it should be. Because it's a good southern way of describing it. But I'm, I'm saying, and if we, here, here's, so how do I know if, I'm re, if, if I can be rebuked by God? Can you receive correction from someone else? Because it wasn't God standing in front of David that day. It was his good friend Nathan pointing his finger right in his face and said, you're the man. God's got things for us. He wants to breathe. Boy, there's, this is just a great song. Can you start singing it? I might, I might coach you through a little bit of it. What a great song. 